anger, depending on your personality, looks very different. Some of you will blow up. Some of you get really irritable and snarky. Some of you will gossip and badmouth. Some of you will complain or hold a grudge or shut people out. Give them the silent treatment. They're not even worthy of your words. You're so angry. Sometimes you get even. Sometimes you cut them off. Sometimes you go online and you become a keyboard warrior and blow people up on social media. But if truth be told, unrighteous anger is destroying your soul. And though on the outside you may appear that you have it all together, inside it is eating you alive. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus turns our attention to unrighteous anger and how it threatens our souls. Why? Because unrighteous anger is both merciless and selfish. It tramples on the image of God in other people and in ourselves by destroying, demoralizing, and dehumanizing. Unrighteous anger is murder without the homicide. Let me give you my big idea this morning. An angry heart has no place in the kingdom of heaven. And for those of you who may be familiar with the Sermon on the Mount, this is what Jesus is doing. He is rolling out the ethics of the kingdom, which are counterculture to the kingdoms of this world. And so Jesus here breaks, or I break it into two points, but uh, my point is here, there is a dangerous problem that each one of us has. And the only answer is a drastic solution. Why? Because an angry heart has no place in the kingdom of heaven. I'll leave these points up for a moment so you can jot them down. They're not too long, thankfully. Let's take a look at the first one, a dangerous problem that we have. Verse 21, you have heard it said, it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to the judgment. I don't know if there are as many commands that share as broad a consensus in both the religions of the world and the hearts of man than the agreement that homicide is evil. And the Old Testament is no exception to this. The uh, Genesis chapter 20 or excuse me, Exodus chapter 20 verse 13, the 6th commandment we, many of us know, you shall not murder. Generations of Jewish scribes taught that the intentional taking of human life was not only a heinous crime against your neighbor, but in fact, it was an affront to the very God who is maker of heaven and earth. Why is that? Because every person's value is not in what they do, but it's a derived value in whom they've been created by and whose image they were made. Notice Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. 
Why is that? Uh, Moses explains this in the law. For God made man in his image. And to murder your neighbor is an egregious sin that incurred serious consequences. Therefore, if this were to happen, the accused would be brought before a jury of judges to determine if their action in taking the life of their neighbor was either homicide or manslaughter or self-defense. If this action was premeditated or simply accidental, and you can read in the law, if two men are... um, cutting wood, and the axe head of one flies off and hits his neighbor and kills him, that is accidental, that is not murder. And uh, the law goes in great detail uh, how, how they were to go to do this because the charge of murder was taken very seriously. Numbers 35 shows us this. If anyone kills a person, the murderer shall be put to death on the evidences of witnesses. The law of God does not give us the right to take the life of our neighbor. But I bet you, because I've known Matt and Joseph long enough, I don't think I need to convince any of you of that fact. If I do, please don't say hi to me after service because you scare me. Jesus uses the sin with the broadest consensus of condemnation to reveal a disease that is festering in the human heart. The unrighteous anger of sin. Community Bible, an angry heart is a dangerous heart. Notice verse 22. Jesus says to those listening, and he says that to you and I this morning, but I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Probably to understand this text that Jesus is teaching, we need to start with the question, what is anger? Uh, David Paulison, in his book, Controlling Anger, it's one of those little CCEF, Christian Counseling books. If you say, you know what, I, I would like to know more about this, go find Joseph, go find Matt, and they can provide those resources to you. But he says that anger tells me two things. Something matters to me. Something is important. And two, something is wrong. Something matters to me, and something is important. And you can be angry about all kinds of things, trivial things. The waitress brings your waffles at breakfast, and they're cold. That is a major bummer, but you can unload your anger on her for something as trivial as cold waffles. Or... You can be angry about something very serious if your spouse is unfaithful to you. Paulson then says, anger is our God-given capacity to respond to a wrong that we think is important. Let me tell you this, often we think anger is sinful. It is not inherently sinful. Let me tell you why. Let me show you some evidence. Be angry, Paul tells us in Ephesians 4.26. Be angry and do not sin. 
Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Let me also show you the heart of God, or God Himself is angry with sin. God loves His very good creation. Something matters to Him. And sin has wreaked havoc and destroyed His very good creation. Something is wrong. And God's anger towards sin and His love for the world, what did He do? He sent His only Son to whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. He sent His Son. He um, constructively responded to the sin of the world in anger and love by sending Christ not only to redeem His people, but to redeem the cosmos from sin. His anger uh, and His love is redeeming on the cross. And in that final day at the second coming, his people, and his world. J.I. Packer in his seminal work, Knowing God, puts it this way. God's wrath, or you could say God's anger, is never capricious. It's never self-indulgent. It's never irritable it's, or morally ignoble like human anger so often is. Instead, it is right and a necessary reaction to objective moral evil. See, the problem with our anger is we rarely, we rarely get it right. Why is that? Because we have unrighteous hearts. Now think about it. We get angry about the wrong things. My waffles were cold. Or um, something like traffic jams, or annoying people, or sports, or the Jaguars pick the wrong players in the draft, though I've never even watched any of the tape. I have no idea, but I've never heard of him, so they don't know what they're doing. And, I, ah! and you can name all kinds of silly things that you get angry about, and if you don't believe me, go on Facebook, go on Twitter. They're just places where people stand on soapboxes and say, I'm stupid, and here's why. But think about it, the, the angst that's there, and they get all these people riled up. We get angry about the wrong things. But also, we get angry when we desire a good thing more than God Himself. And you think of some examples of that um, our spouse's attention, a safe home, fair wages for good work, people's respect. We get angry when we desire those things greater than we desire God. And then we get angry about the right things, but we get angry about them, how? In the wrong way. When somebody cuts me off in traffic and my kids are in the back seat, they're threatening the lives of my children. And that's a right thing to be angry about. But what do we do? We cut them off, we try to run them over the, off the road, and we show them the tall finger. We, we, the, wrong, the right thing in the wrong way. Other things like um, when p- someone treats our children unfairly at school. Abuse. Oppression. When you feel unsafe. When we get angry about the right things in the wrong ways. Anger in and of itself is not the problem. The problem is man's unrighteous heart that twists anger to be self-serving and self-loving 
in what it does, it festers, it contaminates, and it rots our soul, and it comes out at all the wrong times. And instead of using anger redemptively as Christ did towards kingdom objectives, it twists our anger to be self-serving and self-exalting, and it makes anger an instrument of destruction rather than a motivation to redemption. And think often I hear this, well, Jesus flipped the tables of the temple, and that's why I'm doing this. No, you're acting that way because you're kind of a jerk. Jesus saw the twisting of the temple to the benefits of this system, and he saw the porn oppression because of that, and he grew angry, and he acted righteously in that. You're using Jesus' righteous anger as a reason to, uh, to push your soapbox. Brothers and sisters, unrighteous anger is murder without the homicide. Notice at the end of 22, whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Jesus exposes the demeaning nature of unrighteous anger with two examples. The first one is insulting your brother. This is the, the, the word raka. It's Aramaic for empty-headed or fool. Now, to insult a person by calling them idiot or stupid is a deliberate attack designed to undercut and delegitimize their God-given worth as a person. Why do we do this? Because that person won't capitulate to our demands and they threaten what we deem to be important. Something's important, something matters to me, and I think something is wrong. And what do I do? I lash out. Now, we see this kind of thing in social media all the time, on the 24-hour news channels, on the internet. Look at what that idiot has to say about the environment, about gun rights, about politics. Just when I thought she couldn't be any more stupid, there she goes, opens her mouth again about you name in the political, social, whatever subject. See, we attack the dignity of the person because they threaten what matters to me. Instead of listening, we attack the character and deny their worth. Why? To shut them up because we think they're a threat to us. Now let me warn you, Jesus shocks his listeners at the severity of the judgment on anyone who speaks in such a way. What does he say? They will face the council. What is that? That is the Sanhedrin. That is the, the Jewish supreme court. When we attack and demean that Jesus says you are going to go to the supreme court and stand before them. God of truth and creator of heaven and earth, who made man in his own image, takes verbal attacks with serious consequences because they flippantly disregard the image of God in a person for selfish and sinful reasons. Second thing, he says, whoever says you fool. It's the Greek word moros. You might hear the word moron that comes from it. Calling a person a fool in the book of Matthew, was essentially calling them immoral, rebellious, 
wicked, and by doing so, you are saying they are consigned to the eternal condemnation. Let me give you an example of how this fool shows itself. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They are abominable deeds. There is none who does good. And so we say to people, you fool. And Jesus warns us that anger is ruthless because it threatens to bulldoze anyone who stands in its path and leaves a pile of bodies in its wake. It treats image bearers of God as both disposable and contemptible. This is a real problem that we have today. We slap labels on people in order to cancel them, to silence them, whether it be they're woke or they're a bigot, whether they're progressive or whether they're MAGA, whether they're liberals or whether they're Christian nationalists. We weaponize a label in order to portray them as degenerate, forsaken by God, and beyond all hope. And let me tell you, it's not just those people who you don't agree with. It's all of us. We all have that problem. You see, the problem that we also have is we see the sin of our po uh, political or social or whatever opponent, but we don't see the sin of our own heart. We're doing the very sin. We think, say things like, mistakes were made but they're evil. Jesus, the Lord of the universe, will not stand for the trampling and abuse of God's image in our neighbor that erupts from the unrighteous anger of the human heart. Look what he says at the end of verse 22. The hell, they'll be liable to the hell of fire. Literally, Gehenna. Gehenna was the valley that was southwest of Jerusalem where in the Old Testament the wicked kings of Ahaz and Manasseh sacrificed their children to the god Molech. Later on after that ceased, it became a garbage heap where the refuge from Jerusalem was continually burnt. Jesus uses the smoldering flames of Gehenna as a picture of the terrible horrors of God's judgment on the unrighteous. This is shocking and sobering. Charles Quarles, that's his name. I don't know why his parents named his first name that would rhyme with his last. But he says this, To Jesus' listeners, the threat of such severe punishments for mere feelings and insults probably seemed so extreme that it bordered on ridiculous. Nevertheless, Jesus used these extreme examples to demonstrate that the standards of Christ's kingdom far exceed that of ordinary people. He wanted to be abundantly clear that God is not concerned with merely external acts. But as we learned in Sunday school, man looks on the outside, but what? God looks at the condition of your heart. You can fool Matt and Joseph, your small group leader, those who know you because you say all the right things and you quote John Calvin and you know chapter and verse and you stand and sing the songs and you know the prayers and the quotes and do all that stuff. But if your heart is rotten, and far from Jesus, 
Jesus knows. Community Bible, feeling good about yourself because you've never committed homicide is as secure as clinging to a deflated life raft. It will not save you. The anger, and Jesus gives us this warning of the human heart, is seen and known by God. Look um, a few verses right above, maybe on your page, verse 20. For I tell you, and this is, there's, these are six little sections that Jesus is talking about in righteousness here. I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never hurt uh, uh, Enter the kingdom of heaven. These were shocking words. This is like to say, unless your, your righteousness exceeds that of Billy Graham or Mother Teresa or the Pope or the Dalai Lama, pick anybody who uh, is very religious and the epic and the top, unless you exceed them, you'll never enter the kingdom. And people are like, holy cow, this is unreal. And he shows that external compliance to laws is not the get you in heaven, but God knows alone and sees our hearts. And on our own, without Jesus, our hearts are leading us into judgment. And here, an angry heart, brothers and sisters, friends, neighbors, visitors, has no place in the kingdom of heaven. We have a dangerous problem. And there's a drastic solution. We were created for worship. We're created to find glory in all that is good and beautiful and true in creation because it is a reflection of our Creator who is good and beautiful and true. We are designed for worship. And here's where that problem lies. Our hearts are unrighteous. But what we do, uh, we can do all the rituals confession and penance. You can walk every aisle and pray all the prayers. You can uh, go on all the pilgrimages and you can do the fasts. You can offer offerings and sacrifices, but external religion and acts of worship cannot change the problem of an unrighteous heart. You can see all throughout the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 1 here. This is in uh, Amos chapter 5. This is what he said to the people who are doing all the ceremonies and the sacrifices and the prayers, and they're doing it all right, step by step, following it through. I hate, God says, I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your song to the melody of your harps. I will not worship. Why? Because external acts of worship or external acts of righteousness, i.e. not committing homicide, are worthless when they flow from a heart that is poisoned by sin. No act of religious perfume can hide the stench of an unrighteous heart. It's like Axe body spray on a junior high boy. All it does is make the stench worse. And all of you who have been around junior high boys and Axe body spray, you know. So Jesus says there is a radical reconciliation that you need to work for. Notice here in 23 and 24. So if you're offering your gift at the altar 
and they remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Jesus is teaching us that unity in the body of Christ is more important than acts of worship, though acts of worship are really, really important. John 17, the night before Jesus was betrayed and uh, uh, was crucified, he gathered his disciples together. And in John chapter 17 is what's called the high priestly prayer. And this is what he prayed to the Father, that they may be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, so that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. What is the remedy to the, uh, the fragmentation and destruction of an unrighteous heart? The gospel of Jesus Christ. See, the gospel makes us right before God, and it brings us peace before God. When we repent of our sin, of the anger, of the righteousness of our heart, unrighteousness of our heart, excuse me, and we turn to Christ in faith, believing the promises of God, that says, because of who Jesus is and what he has done, I can have peace with God. But that's not just with God. The gospel tells us that the gospel makes us right with our brother and sister that we harbor anger and bitterness towards. The gospel says, repent of your sin and turn to Jesus in faith, believing his promises, you can have peace both horizontally and vertically because of the gospel. When we believe and trust the gospel, we confess that I have an unrighteous unrighteous heart that festers with anger. All of us do. All of us do. And I repent. I renounce the anger, the self-serving pride, the, the sovereignty over my own heart that denies Christ's authority over my life. I repent of that. I literally turn away from that. I renounce that. And then I believe. I trust. I submit to Jesus and obey his commands of one is to pursue unity in the body. But let me tell you, this is the most unnatural thing you can possibly do. I've been in ministry long enough, and I've been in counseling sessions with husband and wife, with other couples, with parents and children. There's nothing more unnatural to our heart than seeking reconciliation. Because to reconcile according to the gospel, I must admit that I have sinned against my brother and sister and admit I was wrong. My kids growing up, I would tell them when they would bicker, I know, they, even my children, um, I would tell them the only person that you can uh, change is your own heart. You can't change your, change your brothers. You can't change your sisters. You take responsibility for yourself. We, uh, and, and this is unnatural, but the gospel gives us the grace to go against our, our uh, uh, nature, and then it's, it must be unwavering. There's no limit to how far we should go to seek reconciliation. 
Jesus is teaching this in northern Israel, about 80 miles north of Jerusalem. And the way the law worked is that many times the people would go two, three times a year. They would make the two, three-day trek down to Jerusalem. They would wait in the long lines to be able to present their offering. They didn't have fast pass back then to be able to get, you know, stay in the hotel so you can get quicker in the line. You would stay in the long lines waiting to give your offering. And after you bought this, this, this lamb and you're trying to wrangle it as you bring it up to the offering, and then by the Holy Spirit's prompting, you're about to give your offering, you're two or three spots away, and then you realize that you, your brother has something against you. And it's not, oh, jo- Joe is a jerk and I don't like him. I have sinned against Joe. Or he is struggling because of something I did. Sins of commission and sins of omission. Things that I have done and things I have left undone. And Jesus says, if you come to that point, don't offer. Don't give your offering and then go back and try to patch it up. Leave it there. Even though you just paid a lot of money for that thing. Go 80 miles back up north, which is not practical. Find Joe. Work it out with your brother. Then he says, you know, then go back. Two, three miles back down to Jerusalem, wait in the lines. Your lamb probably wandered off. Get a new one. Then you're offering. This is, it's, it's, it, Jesus is using hyperbole here to show you the extent that you should go to seek unity and peace within the body of Christ. Reconciliation, brothers and sisters, is that important. Hearts in right relationship with God must be in right relationship with their brothers and sisters as far as you can control. And it's more important than right worship and right doctrine and right ethics. All of those important. Doctrine, really important. Go in Matt's office. He's got lots of books. We have lots of conversations. Doctrine matters. But Jesus is telling you your heart matters. I bet you know somebody who has all the right answers but their heart doesn't know Jesus. And Jesus says, that's a problem. You have all the things, right worship, right doctrine, and right ethics, but until you have a heart that is changed by the gospel and living in peace with his brothers, uh, you are not okay. Community Bible, what I want you to do here is I want you to think, look at your heart right now. Are you harboring unrighteous anger? And I'll wait as you think about it. Who is it? Is it your spouse? Is it your children? Your parents? Your teacher? Your boss? Your neighbor? Your friend? Is it one of the church members sitting in the pew? Is it Matt? Is it Joe? Are you harboring bitterness? Are you seething with anger? Are you harboring hostility that nobody else sees? Jesus is saying, don't sing sing the next hymn. Go make it right. Don't listen. Get up and get out of the sermon. If you leave here, no judgment. Go make it right. Leave the reading unread. Don't take the cup and don't take the bread. Go make it right. Go and repent of your sin and make it right. Restore unity and peace within the body. The health of your soul and the body of community Bible depends on it. 
Charles Quarles again says this. Against this backdrop, Jesus' point was that it's meaningless to offer sacrifices and weep before the altar, pleading for divine forgiveness when one is unwilling to express repentance to persons against whom he has sinned and take practical steps to make things right with them. Divine forgiveness demands repentance. Amen? Jesus demands that we seek reconciliation by humbling ourselves in repentance, not exalting our superior knowledge, our superior worship, our superior point of view. The Gospel demands that we go great lengths to repent of sin and seek reconciliation. There's a radical steps to reconcile, and it, there's an urgency to it. The longer you resist, the longer you let unrighteous anger fester under the surface, the deeper the wound, the steeper the price, and the more dangerous the, the, the wound becomes. Jesus here in Matthew 5 gives us the example of a plaintiff and a defendant. They're walking to the courthouse to stand before the judge to hear their complaints. And he's warning his listeners that to delay reconciliation may cost you everything because the judge's punishment may be far more significant than you'd like. And he said, therefore, don't allow the poison of pride flowing in unrighteous anger to blind you to your need. Jesus is going to say later, the plank in your eye. Sometimes you want to go, let me, let me get that speck out of your eye. But you have a two-by-four hanging out of your head. Please don't. Take care of your house, your problems, your sin, before you try to get that little speck out of their eye. Be reconciled before it's too late. Because unrighteous anger is destructive to your soul. It poisons relationships. It destroys trust. It wounds heart. It consumes mind. It will corrupt your soul. Anger is a cancer that silently devours, destroys, and erodes. And the longer you dig your heels in, the more costly its damage. Don't let unrighteous anger control you. Don't let, allow pride to blind you to your need. Repent and be reconciled before it's too late because an angry heart has no place in the kingdom of heaven. You can come up with all different ways to devise good coping mechanisms. Count to ten. Think of nice things. Think of them in their underwear or with just socks on or something like that to, to quell your anger. But without Jesus, without the promise and the transforming work of the Holy Spirit through the gospel, the source of your unrighteous anger cannot be cleansed. So here's five questions. I'd encourage you to write them down if you're not. Five questions I want to ask you about your anger. One, why are you angry? What, remember, something matters to me, something is not okay. What is that? What is making you angry? What's your trigger? Think about the last time you got angry. What was it? Was it a conversation with your spouse? What did your spouse say? 
Was it at work? What did your boss say? What happened? What pushes your buttons? Be specific. What went wrong that triggered your anger? And what does that anger reveal about what's important to you? I want to be respected. I, I want my kids to succeed. I, I need a good job. I, I want a, the, uh, my relationships. I want respect. I want justice. I hate injustice. Then the question, the second thing, should I be angry about this? Hey, cold waffles are a major bummer. But hey, that's small potatoes. Don't worry about it. Say, hey, can I have some warm waffles? Would that be okay? Injustice towards the vulnerable is wicked. That's important. That's a good thing to be angry about. Waffles, not so much. Second, how do I act when I'm angry? Is this the right way? Am I angry about the right thing? Am I angry in the right way? What do you do when things go wrong? You, just bitterness. You just stuff your anger deep down inside. Do you argue? I have to defend myself. I lash out. I vent my rage. Or as my dad says, do you have diarrhea of the mouth? Do you slander that person? All right. I'm just going to go and gossip and tell all these things. I'm going to badmouth anyone who's ever hurt me. And I'm going to destroy them that way. Not to their face, though. Was your anger, the last time it manifested itself, was it constructive or was it destructive? Was your anger loving? Think about that. Anger can be loving. Was your anger hateful? Was your anger controlled or was it unhinged? Did you get in the zone and then about 10 minutes later you're like, what have I just done? Did you destroy a problem or a person? Or did you seek to help fix that person or that situation? Third question. What were my expectations? In this, what did I want? What did I need? What did I demand? What motivated my answer or my anger? Was it revenge? Was it justice? Did I want accolades? Did I want love? Did I want respect? Did I, was it a trauma? Was it honor? Did, was it insecurities? Was it truth? Was it fear? Was it God's glory? Why did you believe you have the right to be angry? Why do you think you have the right to be angry this way? See, this is not easy. Dealing with our sin and the messiness of life takes time and it takes patience. It takes a mature believer help walking us through that process that we can trust. Anger on its own will destroy us. And, and to these questions, this one specifically, how you answer this question reveals where you need Jesus. Because this question is going to reveal the idols of your heart. You might say, oh, I love Jesus and I want to honor Jesus. But in reality, you want power. You want respect. You want comfort. You want security. Those are your idols and you rubber stamp Jesus' name on those idols. So this anger is showing you what are the issues of the heart, my idolatry, that my anger is revealing to me. 
follow those emotions, and we often say in conservative circles, emotions don't matter. They do matter, but in the right way. Find the emotion, and there's a little string on that emotion, and we just follow that string, and that string leads us to our hearts. And it reveals the joy, the anger, the sorrow, the respect, the power, the comfort, the control, the approval, the love relationship shows us what our heart is valuing. Fourth question, how does Christ answer my anger? Does he rebuke my anger? Does he comfort me in my anger? Does he discipline me? Hey, right thing to be angry about, wrong way. Okay? Uh, it, does he give hope to my anger? This world is not supposed to weigh. It is filled with pride and greed and racism. It is, and this is not the way it's supposed to be. When we look at the end chapters, when Dr. Sunquist preached here, one, one uh, 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 many nations, one lamb. Um, oh, I forgot the third one. I'm sorry. Verthers here. But we have a picture in Revelation of the glories of heaven. And we work our way backwards. Does our anger, righteously uh, felt, righteously dealt with, give us hope of the, the gospel? Does he help us focus? Unrighteous anger comes from a heart that desires anything more J Jesus. We forget often that Jesus reigns, not us. We forget that we're members of his kingdom. He is not members of ours. We forget that he is loving and gracious, good and wise, and we can trust him even then we don't understand and quite frankly, times that we don't like what he's doing. Go read Habakkuk. There are so many things in this world can make us angry. And quite honestly, we're in a, a period where people are so angry, including the church. Most specifically, the church. But we have Christ. We have a kingdom that is unshakable. And there's, it's so much more valuable. Remember that we have Christ. In, we have His comfort, his grace, his mercy, his goodness, his promises, his provision, his love. And James tells us this in James 4, 1 and 2, what causes quarrels among you? And what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war with you? You desire and do not have. So what do you do? You murder. Actual physical murder or murder of the heart. You covet and you can't obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have, but be, you, because you do not ask. Go to Jesus and confess, I am trying to control my life and my world, and I'm not doing a very good job, and I'm angry about that. I need you, Jesus. I need your uh, forgiveness. I need your grace to deal with these things Root up these rocks in the soil of my heart that choke out the gospel. I need your grace. Many of you do not have because you do not ask. Go to Jesus and say, I am weary and heavy laden and I need your rest. And you have promised that you will give it. Finally, my call to you. Bring the broken pieces of your anger. Bring them to Jesus. 
turn to Jesus, you will never get control of the anger of your heart until you meet face to face with the maker of your heart. He made you, he knows you, and he loves you. Tell him what's making you angry. Tell him what you fear. Confess your sin and confess your need of him. Receive the assurance of pardon for all who confess their sin. I love that y'all, in the middle of your service, have a corporate time of confession and receiving the pardon of the gospel. It has transformed our church, and I love that you have it, that you come together and say, we don't have it together, but we, we have our needs, but we have Jesus, and we trust it. And you're reminded week after week, after six days of work where you're heavy and laden, you come together with the joy of the presence of the body where Christ dwells, and you hear the promises, though your sins are many, God's mercy is more. And then you can confess joyfully that Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. I am weak. But he is... Y'all never sang that when growing up? I am weak, but he is... All right, thank you. Today, Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are labor and heavy laden. I will give you rest. Bring the broken pieces. He gives more grace. Therefore, he opposes the proud who cling to their anger. This is my right and my way, and I will pour out my wrath. I am living as I am God in my world, and you're destroying yourself. But he says in this beautiful summary of the gospel, he gives grace to the humble. Who say, I don't have it all together. I, my sins are many, I need you, Jesus. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will from you brothers and sisters for the first time some of you may be here you've been invited by a friend you're curious to hear about this gospel thing for the first time turn to jesus confess your sin i my my world is broken i have no answers i i realize i am have sinned before god confess your sin and turn and trust the promises of god who that he gives transforming grace to the angry heart Trust in the promises of Christ. He gives grace to the humble. And then all of you, some of you have been following Jesus longer than I've been alive. And that's all, I'm old. For the umpteenth time, every day you wake up and you default back into works righteousness mode, I have to, I have to prove my worth, I have to do this. And you say, no, it's not what I do. It's what Christ has done, and I trust him. Confess your sin and trust his promise that he does not lose any, that the Father has given him the promise, whosoever comes, I shall never cast out. Trust the promises of your Savior's love. He gives grace to the humble. Because we have a dangerous problem. There's a drastic solution. Christ died for the unrighteous. And he redeemed us from our sin. And he gives us his righteousness. Trust him today that your angry heart will have no place in the kingdom of heaven. Shall we pray? Gracious Heavenly Father, we come to you and we confess that you are good.
and your love endures forever. Father, we confess that all so often it is hard to let you be sovereign and we run ourselves into the ground. We lash out. We try to fix things. We try to come up with the answers. We try to not expose our weaknesses, our brokenness, because we are ashamed and we don't know what to do. And that festers and then lashes out in anger. But Father, we, we come to you and thank you for who you are and what you have done. Sending Christ to be, stand in our place. And he says, trust in me. Come to me. All you are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And all God's people said,